Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently had the chance to speak with Fabian Drixler about his great new book, Mabiki, Infanticide and Population Growth in Eastern Japan, 1660 to 1950. And this was published in 2013 with the University of California Press. there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently had the chance to speak with Fabian Drixler about his great new book, Mabiki, Infanticide and Population Growth in Eastern Japan, 1660 to 1950. And this was published in 2013 with the University of California Press. I found this book very inspiring, and the details of that are going to follow in the interview to come, so I'll keep this very brief. But suffice to say, one of the things that is really striking and quite wonderful about this book is the way that Drixler has managed to bring together what we might otherwise think of as very different modes of understanding studying and telling stories about the past. On the one hand, you have a kind of demographic mode that thinks and works in terms of data, in terms of charting transformations in populations by looking at things like recorded birth rates, death rates, and using that to tell stories about groups of people, numbers, and populations in the past. He brings this together with an extraordinarily sensitive cultural discursive mode of history telling that asks readers to really challenge and and historically situate some of the most basic comments that we might assume and bring to not just understanding the past, but to the world around us right now. And these are basic concepts like what constitutes birth, what constitutes death, and and so on and so forth. So it's a book about infanticide that's actually not entirely a book about infanticide, and that in the course of telling a story about infanticide is actually challenging the very meaning of the term and the very cultural rooted or showing us the very cultural rootedness and local historical specificity of what that means and what that might mean. And I think in turn, producing a much more empathetic vision of the past um, and hopefully of the present. So it's, as you'll hear in the interview to come, it's it's a very, very rich work. I think it's in some ways um, kind of a field-changing work, and it was both a, a pleasure to read this. It really changed the way I think about a lot of aspects of the kind of stuff that I work on, and it was absolutely a pleasure to talk with Fabian about it. So I hope you'll have a chance to look at the book, to read the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. We're here today to talk with Fabian Drixler about his book, Mabiki, Infanticide and Population Growth in Eastern Japan, 1660 to 1950. Welcome, Fabian, to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and in the middle of a beautiful summer to boot. So thank you and welcome. Hello, Carla. Really delighted to be here. So could you start us off, as is traditional um, for new books in East Asian studies, by telling us a little bit about what brought you here? How did you come to the history of modern and perhaps modern and early modern Japan? 
Well, like most uh, such stories, they, they could be told at different levels of detail, and, and it is a story of, of uh, path dependency, unsurprisingly. Um, and I'll just give you one brief version. And that starts uh, at the age of 14 or 15, when I uh, lived in my native small town Germany, and I was very... Um, much in love with learning languages. Uh, and somebody told me Japanese is really difficult. And uh, so I, I, I took on the challenge. It, it so happened that uh, the wife of the local professor of Japanese literature um, offered afternoon courses for high school students who were interested in that sort of thing. And, and so that's when, when my journey uh, into an engagement with Japan really begins. Before I knew it, I was engrossed uh, with the beauty of Japanese um, and also with a different ways of seeing the world that uh, was that, that that are encoded in in this language and a little later when i was 16 um, my my interest in east asia had grown to such proportions that I decided to attend a boarding school in Hong Kong, the United World College of, of Hong Kong, which was a wonderful and, and formative experience, and also uh, in various ways drew me into the Chinese world. Mm. Nevertheless, I, I decided to pursue my undergraduate degree in, in Japanese studies. And at the end of those four years, I was growing increasingly eager to, to also explore the world beyond Japan. And at that point, I signed up for a master's degree uh, that, that was called International Relations. Um, and within a couple of months, uh, I fell in love with American academia. That was the first time I, I uh, attended an American institution um, here at Yale, actually, by, by, by coincidence. And I had an encounter with a wonderful teacher and, and my friend, um, a geneticist and polymath by the name of Robert Wyman, who introduced me to demography and, and population studies and opened my eyes to uh, the possibility uh, of that field. Now, listeners might wonder, what, what does that have to do with Japanese history? But uh, at that point, um, I realized something that uh, for historians, I think, is, is pretty obvious. And that is that our understanding of the present and our expectations of the future are deeply shaped by our understanding of the past. Um, and as I read piles of articles and, and the odd book about uh, demographic issues, I realized that what we know about the demographic past is surprisingly limited compared to the kind of knowledge we have about uh, other aspects of, of the human experience. And by happy coincidence, Japan is one of the few places in the world where we can push that knowledge back beyond um, the 20th and even beyond uh, the 19th century. Uh, and the idea of, of diving into that richness was, was very, very attractive to me. That said, I spent the next couple of years uh, deeply tempted to, to go into uh, Chinese history as well. Um, and it was really just in the second or third year of my PhD program that I uh, waved goodbye to that possibility. And that was, well, um, th there was actually, a, again, a very contingent reason for it. So I had dug around in, in uh, various places in, in Chinese history where I thought there might be compelling uh, stories of demographic change to be found. For example, in 17th century Sichuan, uh, we have this massive depopulation event that isn't terribly well understood. But... I didn't find any great sources that allowed me to, to shed new light on it. And at the same time, I happened onto this uh, story on the Japan side that, that has now grown into this book that, that I found very compelling at, at, at various levels. Um, and maybe I can, well, maybe, maybe I'll talk about that for, for a moment, what what brought me into yeah, this specific I would have project. asked you about that anyway, so go for okay, it. Okay, great. <laughs> 
so it started with the realization that there is a big gap in in the literature, right? I, I imagine a lot of dissertation projects start from that point. And that gap uh, looked as follows. There have been a lot of great village studies uh, of communities in Tokugawa, Japan. And in some parts of the country, they showed that people had very few children, two or three on, on average, uh, show up in, in the actual population registers. Um, and you, you have to add some number to, to account for children that died before they could be recorded. And in those same regions, by the 1920s, when we have the first census data, um, the number of children per woman is, is more than twice that. It's, it's, it's about six children per woman. And nobody had really explained or, as far as I could tell, much noticed this uh, seeming transformation. And so my initial question was, how do we get from this world of, of very small families uh, to one that, uh, that looks relatively close to what demographers like to, to call uh, natural fertility? Um, and so initially, this was actually not a project about infanticide. I, I was much more interested in, in people making decisions about how to shape their lives, how to plan their families and, and the role of cultural context, the, the role of economic conditions in that. But as I started diving into it, I realized that there was this very large and lively conversation about the meaning of infanticide in the late Tokugawa period. And in fact, the whole conversation of that society about its its demographic conditions, about its demographic future, really centered on this issue of, of infanticide. And so before I knew it, I turned into Mr. Infanticide and have now spent many years uh, talking with great enthusiasm about a very somber topic. So Fabian, what story did you stumble upon? Do you mind sharing that with us? Because I'd probably ask you that anyway. Ah, so in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. In the 18th century, broadly speaking, in sizable parts of Japan, uh, and the largest contiguous part where this is true is what I call Eastern Japan, the area roughly between Edo and the north of, of Sendai Domain, so that's now the middle of Iwate Prefecture. Uh, in, in sizable parts of Japan, people raised very few children. In fact, so few children that every generation was smaller than the one that went before it. And the children that were not chosen to to, to be raised with with great affection uh, were done away with uh, typically right at the moment of birth. And people thought of this as, as far as we can reconstruct, um, people thought of this as an expression of responsibility, an expression of being a good parent to the children that you do raise, uh, being a good uh, filial son or daughter uh, to your elders, uh, and, and, and also being a good descendant to the ancestors in your household uh, for, for reasons that we, we uh, can discuss in more, more, more detail later on. Um, so a strikingly different view of, of infanticide than we would have in, in our own historical moment, right, where, where it's this uh, shocking abomination that virtually nobody would contemplate uh, in, in, in their own lives. Um, so we, we move from this world in, in uh, the 18th century, broadly speaking, to this rising crescendo of voices uh, that, that oppose infanticide. Um, and in that conversation, the years around 1790, the aftermath of the Great Temme Famine, is, is really a dividing point. And uh, it's, it's a time when you uh, begin to see new kinds of uh, 
materials being being produced to to talk people uh, out of committing infanticide, to shock people out of uh, believing that this is a part of uh, living a good life, but also more and more of the domains uh, in, in in these areas where people don't raise very many children adopt uh, very expensive and, and elaborate policies to to stop their subjects uh, from um, raising only some of their children. And then by 1850, uh, it seems that these interventions actually uh, have considerable success in terms of uh, transforming people's attitudes to uh, the kind of questions that that were at the foundation um, of uh, this what I what what I call the the culture of infanticide. So ideas about the humanity or or otherwise uh, of the child, ideas of responsibility, ideas of economic success. Uh, ideas of obligation to the larger community, and so on. Now, at this point, it gets complicated. So thus far, I've, I've told this very neat story of a grand change, a change in culture, a change in, in understanding the world on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, a grand uh, shift in, in demography, because in the 18th century, uh, the fertility rates we can reconstruct from um, the population registers that I gathered for this book uh, stand at around three, three and a half children per woman. And by 1850, uh, we're into the range of uh, four and a half or, or five children. Now, why does it get complicated? It gets complicated because uh, later on, I found that there are all kinds of traces of infanticide persisting much, much longer uh, beyond this point. And this was actually one of the big things that happened for me between the dissertation and um, and the book, that the dissertation very much stressed the central discontinuity, which I suppose in some ways also played to my biases as a historian. I you know, was, was shaped by ideas like the invention of tradition. And so I was always suspicious when, when people, uh, as they so often do, told stories of continuity and really drawn to this idea that a society can uh, transform itself very fundamentally. But then one, one day I was idly playing around uh, with, with data from the mid-major period for, uh, around 1900 and, and making a map of the stillbirth rates as they were reported at the time. Um, and it turned out that at the edges of eastern Japan and in a couple of other uh, areas of the Japanese islands, there were these clusters of districts that had fertility, that had, uh, excuse me, uh, stillbirth rates of 30 percent. Uh, in, in, in one case, uh, 48 uh, percent for, for, for several years. And these districts are, are fairly large. And so this is not some, some random fluctuation, but really means that a large population um, trudges up to the local office. And after every second birth, they submit a report saying, um, unfortunately, the child was stillborn. Now, from other parts of the world, we know that um, a rate above five or six percent is pretty unlikely. Um, and so this is very powerful evidence that widespread infanticide and by extension probably some of the understandings of the world that uh, sustained this, this this practice existed all the way into the early uh, 20th century. And that was one of the things that, that required uh, quite a lot of reconceptualization and uh, rewriting. Although going back to the dissertation, I was actually very pleased with myself for having been... Uh, <laughs> For, for having been uh, judicious enough not to take uh, what was then an absence of evidence as evidence for absence. But 
the whole structure of the dissertation uh, really drove home the point that there was this massive change because the chapters, the core chapters at least, were thematic, and each of them described this uh, grand arc from the world where infanticide was normative to uh, an understanding of the world that made infanticide uh, untenable. And, and this repetition of the same story in different registers, uh, I think, really drove home the point that change was much, much more important than continuity. Um, and also, I stopped in 1880, uh, which it was really the result of a discontinuity in, in my sources. That, that might be moderately interesting to know about. So at the end of the Tokugawa period, the nature of our demographic sources um, for Japan uh, changes. And it changes because in 1872, the new Meiji government discontinues the old registers of religious surveillance that are the mainstream that are the most important source for historical demographers of the Tokugawa period. So these were uh, registers that um, were compiled once a year in every village and uh, were justified as uh, sort of rituals in which the villagers each certified uh, that they were Buddhists in good standing and that they were not Christians. Um, now, for various reasons, uh, including the end of uh, the ban on Christianity. These registers are superseded by the household registers of the modern Japanese state in, in 1872, which exists to this day. But while the Tokugawa period population registers survive in gratifying numbers and, and are often reprinted in uh, primary source collections and, and existing great numbers uh, in, in archives, all the household registers of the Meiji period and uh, of, of the 20th century are locked away for privacy reasons. And so historical demographers can't actually get at them. And so we have this rather ironic situation that in certain dimensions, we know a great deal more about the population patterns of the Tokugawa period than of the more recent past in Japan. So in a, in a nutshell, I couldn't continue the kind of micro-level analysis uh, that that I do in, in the dissertation and in, in, into this book uh, beyond the, the early 1870s. The other thing that happened in the 1870s is that this very lively conversation about the meaning of infanticide has a final crescendo and then falls all but silent. So as far as I can tell, and of course future researchers might, might overturn this impression, but as far as I can tell, Infanticide just ceases to be uh, a big occupation for policymakers, for local leaders, uh, really for, for, for anyone after about 1877, 1880. But once I discovered this, this very compelling evidence for the persistence of infanticide way into the 20th century, and I'm not just talking the first years of the century, but at a lower level, we can even see it in the late 1940s, right on the eve of the effective legalization of abortion. I came to realize that the silence on the discursive side is a really interesting phenomenon in itself. And some of the later chapters in my book now address this, this uh, puzzle. Why is it that infanticide that, that has been at the center of attention um, for, for, for decades and decades can persist without attracting much comment and, and without attracting much in the way uh, of effective uh, countermeasures uh, for the entire duration of uh, imperial Japan? 
That's right. And that's actually a particularly fascinating part of a particularly fascinating book. And I, that's, we, we are absolutely going to get there um, by the end of our conversation. But you've already, um, Fabian, and thank you so much, talked a little bit about the transformation from dissertation to book. And it sounds like, um, for I haven't had a chance to read the dissertation, but I have had a chance to read the book quite closely. Um, and there are some major transformations between formats that you're pointing out that really involved, at least from um, what I'm hearing, restructuring it um, pretty dramatically, right? Emphasizing very different aspects of the history, bringing it into a period that you hadn't treated before. Um, and these are some major transformations that I think speak to, well, that I think were very effective and speak to some of the largest contributions made by the book. And I think it, it paid off to take the time, and, and I don't know how long it took, but to take whatever time and energy you had to commit to that process to do it. Because as I was saying to you um, before we started this, and as I have been saying to people in the past two days since I've been reading this book, this is one of the best first books I've ever read. I mean, it's, it's really amazing on many levels. And and, um, let's, and I'd like to get at, get at at least some of those levels, at least from the perspective of one reader um, in the course of our conversation. So the, um, as we move from talking about the genesis of the book to getting really into the book itself, there's a lot that's happening early on in the book. Um, and I don't want to you know, take the whole time to talk about it, but let's at least talk about some of these really, really important arguments and concepts that you're raising early on here, because um, you're raising some very, very important arguments, um, making some very important conceptual contributions and revisions that are not just germane to Japanese history that really speak to, and I, I think reverberate through historiography um, and its various partners um, much more broadly read. And so I'd like to ask you about a few of those um, before we get into the later part of the book. So the introduction opens on a scene in the mountains of Japan. And, as and you take us through this illustrated panel that depicts this scene. In this panel, a midwife kneels next to a mother who's just given birth and strangles the newborn. It's a very arresting way to begin, but turns out to be a very arresting book. And it's a, a really a testament to the book itself that both it never shades into a kind of judgmental or sensationalistic um, account at all of what could be a very um, emotional and potentially divisive subject, right? You're talking about infanticide and abortion. And at the same time, it manages to weave together these two crucial strands of historiography that aren't often brought together. That is a cultural history approach and a demographic history approach in a way that's just... I mean, I'm going to say brilliant because that's how I feel right now. It's a really, uh, it's, it's really um, staggering how well you've made this work and how readable the book is. And so this is one of the major contributions of the book. And so it's one of the things that I'd like to talk a little bit about either early on now or um, before we end. Let's start, before we talk about that bringing together, though, let's make sure that um, listeners have an understanding of what we mean by the demographic part of the book. So the book charts, and this is one of the um, important arguments you lay out early on, it charts a demographic revolution from the 18th century to the middle of the 20th century in Japan. And you've already laid out in your introductory comments some of the major um, aspects of this transformation. Now, there are 
at least two really important theories about population growth broadly writ um, that your book and your findings throughout through this study challenge quite dramatically. One is the assumption of a reverse fertility transition. Um, well, well, one you're finding, rather, a reverse fertility transition in eastern Japan that poses a really dramatic challenge to prevailing theories of demographic change. And because the demographic um, contribution of the book seems really crucial here, I'd, I want to make sure that we give that its, its due. And so can you talk a little bit um, early on here about the ways that your findings about infanticide in the book um, importantly challenge and in some ways overturn some of the ways that we've thought about demographic history um, in in modern history. Mm. Thank you so much for this. The textbook view of the grand sweep of demographic history uh, goes something like this. We can divide history into two or three stages. So we have a pre-transition world where people have as many kids as uh, will come, essentially, and also the, the disease environment, etc., is still such that, that the average lifespan is quite short. And, and this combination um, keeps population size roughly in balance. And then we have a transition period where advances in uh, sanitation, nutrition, etc., drive down uh, the mortality rate and the fertility rate. And after a lag time, declines as well. And Finally, we, we end up uh, in, in a new happy homeostatic state where people have only as many children as they choose, typically uh, quite, quite few, um, and they live very long uh, and, and, and rich lives. Uh, so this is the basic idea or, or one of the ways of stating the basic idea of, of the demographic transition. And so one half of that transition is what people call the fertility transition, the, the journey that every society uh, supposedly undertakes from high fertility to low. This understanding of the world uh, was first formulated in Princeton in the 1920s and has actually turned out to be uh, really quite remarkable in terms of its predictive power because so many societies in the 20th century have traveled down that road. Um, and so when well-informed people think about the demographic future, they will often assume that uh, fertility over uh, long periods, only changes in one direction, namely downward. You know, you might get the odd baby boom in, in between, but the general momentum of human history is toward people having fewer kids. And when very smart demographers at the United Nations, for example, uh, calculate their projected values for the future world population, they very consciously use this as an assumption uh, for, for their inputs um, that... Uh, fertility will continue to decline. You know, even, so they, they, they for many years, have published three versions uh, of the future of, of the world population, a low, a medium, and a high variant. And the only difference between those was the speed at which fertility declines. But even in the high variant, fertility uh, declined all over the world, converged on um, a level just below or, or uh, around replacement fertility uh, to 2.1 children. Now, in recent years, uh, I think for the first time in, for, for the 2010 revision, they also added a constant fertility variant. Uh, I think just, just to show uh, how, how powerful the exponential function is. And that constant fertility variant uh, gets us to 27 billion people in uh, 2100. 
um, as opposed to, I think, if memory serves, about 16 billion, billion people in, in, in the high variant. Um, but reading that projection, I, I get the sense that nobody really believes that, that, that this could happen. Uh, and quite likely, uh, they are right. But if the story of Eastern Japan is anything to go by, where uh, in the space of a century, we see a doubling of fertility. I think we should at least consider the possibility that this could happen again um, in in many parts of the world, and that you know, far from fertility just being constant, we might see parts of the world where uh, the downward trend of fertility will be reversed. And there have been some recent uh, reports out of Egypt, for example, that suggest that that, that might be happening, although it's, it's far too early to tell. I mean, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not trying to make my own grand predictions of, uh, of, of, of the future. Um, in, in a way, it's the opposite. It's... Right. it's uh, an attempt to say these pleasingly parsimonious um, generalizations that we have about the demographic past um, are based on a fairly small subset of the human experience. It's really, you know, in the main, it's, it's uh, the, the European experience of declining fertility um, that begins in France in the 18th century and then broadens out into a more or less global phenomenon uh, in the course of the 20th uh, century. Um, but when we look at other parts of the world, and as I mentioned before, Japan uh, is, is one of those few places where we can really establish these demographic measures with a great deal of confidence because there was a society that already in the 17th century created the kind of sources that demographers need and, and miraculously has preserved uh, many, many individual documents uh, from that world. When we look at Japan, uh, we we see that this is not actually the only way that, that societies can change. And so my, my conclusion on that front is that we should, in our thinking of the past, allow for the possibility that this sort of thing has happened uh, elsewhere, where, however, we, we don't have the demographic sources. And if there's time, I could, I could talk about some societies where, where I think uh, there are some indications that we also saw sustained periods of low fertility that are then succeeded by, by uh, an, a resurgence of fertility. But also thinking about the future, it means that I think we should be open to big surprises, that we should prepare ourselves for a wide uh, range of possible outcomes. Um, and if you think that population growth is, well, I'm getting a bit political here. And uh, again, this is a bit uncomfortable because I, I was very... I felt very strongly that I must not impose my political views on the documentation of the past. Sure. I mean, that, that, that you're comfortable. The, I mean, you know, whatever you're comfortable talking about is, is fine. Well, I, I, I just very briefly. Sure. Um, say what, what, what my political conclusion from this is, but if we think that, uh, rapid population growth is a potential problem in this world, then we shouldn't be complacent about it. And, the kind of projections that, that, that we've seen that show this leveling off of, 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 of population growth have been a major reason why, why a lot of uh, well-informed people today do no longer think that population growth is, is one of the great uh, challenges of our age. But if you, you follow my thinking and, and say that the future is wide open on that front, then it makes a lot of sense to prepare for uh, a range of scenarios because of, 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 of the great uh, risk that the more extreme parts of those uh, scenarios uh, entail. 
but with that, we should probably return to uh, <laughs> the past. <laughs> And it, well, in fact, uh, we can return to the past by actually, um, there are a few things embedded in what you just said that speak directly to, I think, some of the really interesting contributions that the book is making that actually get us um, into the body of the book a little bit more. Um, in, men in fact, in mentioning uh, the relationship of the past to the present, and this is something that's very germane to all of us who work on the history or the past, really, um, in all of its forms anywhere, one of the things that the book argues is that because in um, Eastern Japan, which, you're, uh, which is the focus of your book, and we'll talk about that as a region in a moment, fertility, as you're showing here, rose and fell as a result of cultural factors in part, right? So images, metaphors, worldviews, discourses about human life. Because of that, because that was so important to charting the change, it's actually not possible to confidently predict transformations in fertility patterns, right? Because you can't predict those transformations um, in cultural, um, in, in those kinds of culturally mediated uh, demographic Ways and so uh, you meant you call demography. I think somewhere late in the book is a an open dynamic system, right? Mm -hmm. And so this just I don't you know we don't have to talk too much about it, but it's just it's more it seems to me to be a stronger claim yeah. than simply well if we don't have the data we can't predict right. It seems to be to be something that's about a qualitative shift in the way we think about using the past to predict the present rather than simply a a conversation about the presence or absence of data, right? Um, exactly. That's that's a very important point to me, and I, I thank you for making it with such clarity. Oh no, I mean you made it with such clarity, which is the reason why I can I can re bring it up here. Um, but also, one of the things that I just want to mention, and you don't need to talk too much about this um, if you don't like, um, but it's important I think to bring up. You've mentioned the word fertility, and I just mentioned the word fertility. One of the really important conceptual and ontological contributions that the book makes early on is by using a very and proposing that we think of a very special definition of fertility. This is really striking. So your definition of fertility in the book, it's not based on the number of children who are actually born. It's based instead on the number who are allowed to live. So this is... It's, um, I don't, I mean, you don't need to explain that at this point because the book itself, right, is all about that. It's sort of all about why that makes sense as a way of considering <laughs> fertility, you know? So, I mean, you'd be just reiterating the whole book right at the beginning. But um, it's, I think, a very important place at which it's very clear that bringing together demographic history and cultural history in this organic way that doesn't just mush them together, but uses them as methodological positionings from which to actively, creatively bring a critical perspective to the concepts used in both. And then as a kind of feedback loop, then go back to each kind of history and see it anew. This is one moment in which it's really clear how transformative that is and how productive that is. And it's just one of many moments in the book that does that. So this is, I think, a model for what can happen when you're doing truly transdisciplinary work, truly organically transdisciplinary work in this way. So um, I just wanted to signal that early on because it's a very important 
marker of how important I think this book is in helping us rethink these categories. Thank you. Um, so another thing, and this gets us well into the body of the book now, um, that we've both you mentioned early on is this idea Eastern Japan. Now, the book itself is one of the major conceptual categories that you're also, I think, very productively engaging with very critically is the way we treat space in history. Um, and so you mentioned early on uh, that you're, among other things, challenging a kind of historiographical tendency to read space as time. Um, you're also using a unit um, that is a very different kind of unit than that used by other historians, perhaps who have worked on the history of Japan. And that is the unit of Eastern Japan as a unit of analysis. So can you talk a little bit about that decision. Um, what, so what is it, why is it critical or in what ways does it critically transform what you're able to say here to focus on that as a unit? And how um, does that then, if we can sort of move from that, how do you then locate within that unit sort of, uh, or compare that to other distinct cultures of infanticide within a broader context of Japan? So does that make sense? There's a lot in there, but no, that's 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 a great question. When you write a book, when um, you, you you tell a story, uh, you need at some basic level uh, a unit that that can be the subject of a narrative. And a lot of people who work in historical demography or the history of infanticide or the history of population policy in Japan have solved that by talking about an individual village um, or uh, an individual domain state as it as it struggled uh, with with depopulation etc and these are uh, very valuable uh, contributions and uh, I'm so much of my, my my book is informed by that earlier literature but I thought that uh, ringing together the entirety uh, of, of, of Eastern Japan um, would reveal a couple of things so for one it shows uh, just how deeply integrated uh, the, the discursive networks were that um, sustained, uh, challenged, uh, changed the way that, that people thought about uh, their reproductive choices because they really flowed across uh, the boundaries between villages uh, and, and even the boundaries between domains. It also speaks to the question of um, what Japan really was before the modern age. So uh, today, Japan is one of the prime examples of a country that's, that's closer to the uh, homogeneity end of, of, of the spectrum for all that. Many academic careers uh, have, have been made arguing that, that, that Japan uh, contains multitudes, and, and, and of course it does. But the self-perception of the Japanese uh, mainstream population is that it's, it's a fairly uh, unified uh, country. But when you look at the uh, demography of the Tokugawa period and, and really the culture of the Tokugawa period as it is expressed by demographic choices, that is much less the case. Um, and there's all kinds of interesting evidence that understandings of uh, infanticide, for one, were quite distinct between different regions. So there, there were areas of uh, the archipelago where, where people consciously said, one of the things that makes us good people is that we will raise every single child and we don't even consider uh, committing infanticide. Um, I start one of my chapters uh, with this encounter in a highway in 
where pilgrims uh, say we cannot possibly stay under this roof because we've just discovered there's somebody uh, from one of the parts of Japan where uh, babies are being killed. And that's very incongruous with uh, the, the aims of our pilgrimage. And so I thought in, in, in a single book at, at this point to talk about the entirety of Japan would be quite confusing. It, it would you know, lead, lead to um, great, great entanglements of, uh, of, of, of the storylines. And after gathering a lot of material uh, to, to help me draw the boundaries around Eastern Japan, I, I, I decided that that was a reasonable unit. I will confess that there's still some level of discomfort on, on my part. I mean, one problem with Eastern Japan is that it's not a very precise term. And, and so I define it for my, for my own purposes in, in, in the book. And it's actually a bit smaller than what many people would consider Eastern Japan. As I, as I mentioned, it, it starts uh, on the outskirts of Edo and goes up uh, two-thirds of the way to the northern tip of, of Honshu. So it's really the north Kanto and, and the southern two-thirds uh, of, of, of the northeast. And it's not uh, a definition that, that is particularly uh, a household term. Um, now, in the Tokugawa period, people weren't so bothered about it, about having precise definitions. And they had a term for eastern Japan, several terms actually, Togoku, Azuma. Um, but it wasn't necessarily important to decide whether, say, the province of Sagami was, was part of that or not. Um, but once you start drawing maps and, and, and charts, of course, you have to make these decisions. Where do I draw my boundaries? And, you know, to some extent, my, my decisions were... So that, that there's some boundaries that I, that I drew as the result of the results of my uh, research. For example, that the province of Echigo is not part of eastern Japan or that the northern tip uh, of Honshu is not part of eastern Japan. It's really a reflection of my demographic findings there and, and my uh, findings uh, in, in the discursive record. But you could probably make an argument that the southern boundaries of, 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 of eastern Japan, I could have gone a, a little bit further south. And as, as, as readers engage with this concept, I think that's worth keeping in mind that um, you know, on the one hand, I think uh, Eastern Japan is a historical subject with real substance, but like so many other uh, subjects, there are some boundaries that, that remain quite fuzzy. But, but on some level, though, I mean, that's actually quite appropriate for the nature of the book, which is, um, it seems to me to be on many levels, so many of the arguments of the book are all about asking us to be critical about boundaries, right? And, and to Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's very astute. I mean, the, um, the, the issue of fertility we just spoke about, <laughs> the issue of Eastern Japan. Um, also, I mean, as we move forward into the chapters in this first part of the book, where I'm um, just to kind of back up a little bit, uh, this first part of the book looks at a period from about 1660 to 1790, during which infanticide, as you're showing here, was actually widely regarded as ethically unproblematic. And it, it parts of this history, in fact, also socially responsible. And you take us through the different manifestations of that. So I'm, I'm getting back to the boundary thing, but I just want to, um, we don't have time to talk about all of these chapters, but just to signal what's happening very, very briefly for listeners. Um, you talk, you take us through very different attitudes toward family planning and different attitudes toward infanticide in 18th century Japan, um, which 
Um, and as a footnote, one of the things that comes out there that we're going to, I'm sure, return to by the end of our conversation is the importance of, speaking of boundaries, spatially bounded face-to-face communication mm-hmm. in, de- you know, in determining why some of these differences exist regionally, right? Um, mm-hmm. you, you take us through, again, boundaries, um, the, a chapter where we uh, you talk about a worldview that sees infants as liminal beings uh, rather than fully formed humans or fully formed animals, even again about boundaries. Um, the the fourth chapter, and this is actually maybe we can pause here for a moment, is also about a kind of bounded entity, and that is the STEM household, the STEM family. This is a chapter where you're raising um, the importance of the STEM family is actually, I think, a good place to pause for a moment because that does come up later on as one of the transformations in the second part of the book, but this is also part of the book that introduces this, the title of the book, actually, which um, listeners or readers may not be familiar with, Mabiki. And so let's start by talking a little bit about um, the STEM family and then move maybe to Mabiki um, before we move on. And so the STEM family, in this part of the book, um, you're arguing that population growth is halting in the last quarter of the 17th century because people are postponing marriage and having fewer children. And this is happening in part um, because something that's you're calling the STEM family becomes the normative unit of commoners' lives and also of their afterlives. And so can you talk a little bit about what is the STEM family and its importance to the work that you're doing in this part of the book? So what's special about the STEM family is, it, is that it's the only way um, of organizing a household that is potentially immortal. So if you have a nuclear household, for example, it uh, disperses after, what, 20, 30 years uh, at, at, at most. If you um, have a complex household where all the sons or uh, maybe even, even uh, the daughters stay with the parents and, and bring in spouses. After a couple of generations, it becomes so large that it's uh, not really uh, a single household or, or family anymore, but something uh, like a lineage that has very different implications for um, mutual obligation and, and, and levels of sharing, etc. The STEM family works as follows. Um, in each generation, only one child remains with the parents and brings in a spouse. And so you can have... Uh, two, three, sometimes even four married couples within the same family, but only one per generation. And uh, this is the way of organizing a household that becomes normative in Japan uh, toward the late 17th century. Um, And one important aspect of this process uh, is the rise of funerary Buddhism. So as part and parcel of the suppression of Christianity, um, all subjects in the islands of Japan are required to acquire an affiliation with a Buddhist temple. Um, and over time, it seems that uh, the Buddhist priests work out a way to make this more than an imposition, make this more than a nuisance. Um, and, and they offer people something really quite wonderful, and that is the technology to transform their ancestors and ultimately themselves into serene deities that are exempt from the cycle of of, uh, rebirth and suffering, as long as their descendants continue to venerate them, as long as their descendants continue to pay the Buddhist priests to perform uh, the the, the appropriate rites on their behalf. Um, And for this to work, it's paramount that the household continues and that it's reasonably prosperous so that it can continue to to, to support uh, the local temple. Now, once this is your assumption, 
it's not so important uh, that you have uh, a third or fourth son. Um, in fact, the third or fourth son could could actually be considered uh, an extravagance that that saps the strength um, of the household by requiring all sorts of expenses uh, while while he's a child, and then. Um, when he grows up, uh, for all that there are bans on, on partable inheritance in, in many parts of Japan, parents are very affectionate with their children, it seems, and, and a lot of them uh, decide to, to, to break those laws and, and give some inheritance even to second or, or third sons. But uh, that, of course, disperses the patrimony of, of the household. And so um, a lot of people conclude that it's much better to not raise that child to begin with and instead raise those two or three children um, that, that, that you select from, all those that you, you give birth to, raise them as well as you can um, so that the household will remain prosperous, that your parents and, and your dead ancestors will, will have a secure future. And in fact, some people are euphemizing this process um, in terms of or are analogizing this to the way you would thin rice plants, right? Exactly. And so that brings us to this mabiki Exactly. That's that's where the title comes in. So the single most common uh, term for infanticide uh, in, in Japan in this period uh, is this metaphor from, from agriculture to thin out um, plants that uh, you, you grow from seed. And so initially they, 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 they grow very dense. Um, but if you want them to uh, reach their full potential to maximize the yield, you have to uh, remove quite a lot of them and, and only leave the most uh, promising plants. And this metaphor actually works at, at uh, multiple levels that I think are quite quite interesting. So, so one is the basic assumption that uh, you plan your reproductive future in the way that you would plan um, the planting of a field. It's a subjectivity of life that, that is very um, much turned to, toward the future and, and believes in personal control uh, over your fate. And this is not at all to be taken for granted, um, especially in terms of reproductive cultures. We have all sorts of fascinating evidence, uh, even from places like uh, the early 20th century in Britain, that if, if you ask people how many children do they want, um, people would respond, that's up to God. Uh, but in Japan in this period, people clearly feel very much in control of how many children uh, they, they are going to have. Another implication of this metaphor is that there is a trade-off between quantity and uh, quality. Um, and, you know, just the other day, I, I was watching a Japanese program about farmers in Aomori Prefecture in, in their apple orchards. And many of us who have been to Japan will have noticed that Japanese fruit is often magnificently large, right? And, and Japanese consumers will pay a big premium for that. Um, and it turns out that the way that this is achieved, at least in the case of apples, is that the orchard owners will, will climb up to the tree and pinch out most of the blossoms so that only a few blossoms turn into apples, but then the apples will be these magnificent, huge orbs uh, that, that, that consumers love. Now, apples uh, weren't important in, in, in Tokugawa, Japan. This really takes off in the major period. But much more generally, uh, this, the, this, this idea that fewer children means better children is, is really deeply embedded in this phrase. There was actually another reason, though, why I chose to make that the title of the book, and that gets into the issue of um, abortion. Um, now, for us, for, well, for, for many of us, abortion and infanticide are, are very... Uh, different kind of acts um, unless you oppose abortion and then you will you will 
often describe it as a form of infanticide. But in my sources, a lot of people mentioned them pretty much in the same breath um, and without much indication that they thought one was worse than the other. The main consideration seemed to be that having an abortion was more dangerous uh, to, to, to the mother. Um, and Mabiki can refer to, to, to both of them um, in, in ways that the English terms infanticide or, or abortion uh, don't. But you know, above all, I, I, I thought that this term uh, really expresses quite a range of, of basic um, assumptions that sustain this culture of infanticide. And maybe just to, to add a, a last one, it is the metaphor um, of, of the household as this organic uh, thing, as something, something like a plant potentially uh, that needs to have uh, some of its sprouting branches um, pinched out to... Um, to achieve its full potential. Um, and, you know, the, the literal quotes from, from people in the, the 18th century that, that say uh, people fear the luxuriant uh, growth of, of, of leaves of their descendants and, and worry about the strength of the, the stem being, being sapped. So in this first part of the book, after, um, so that we can move, I don't want to keep you for two hours, but I do want to keep you long enough to get to the second half. So, um, so after you've, you've talked about these different ways of kind of ex- culturally understanding the practice of infanticide from, from a lot of very different perspectives. So we talked about um, the analogies to humans and animals. We talked about the um, concerns with immortality and with a STEM family. You, t- you also take us through material context for infanticide. So people were too poor. Um, there was an opportunity cost of diverting a woman's work from production of from material production to childbearing um, the, lim- the limitations on the value of children as producers and contributors to the family the expense of raising a child and then you take us through a really fascinating chapter and I just want to signal it for listeners chapter six where okay now that we understand that it's a choice that a family's making on what basis um, in addition to these other things that we've um, that we've now learned about do they make the choice and part of that basis has to do with divination our expectations. And there are some really arresting stories in this chapter of people killing newborns because the gender of the newborn didn't accord with what had been expected or predicted pre-birth. So, oops, it's a girl. We know that if, you know, the wife is 44, it should be a boy. So um, we're going to return um, the child. So it's really, really um, interesting here to develop this very rich cultural picture of the context in which these choices would be made. And then you take us through um, a chapter that estimates the rate of infanticide using four methods, which ultimately winds up giving us a number of about four in every 10 children that were mabikied, right? Um, in mm. the abortion or infanticide. Now, after setting up this this first part of the book, um, you bring us to a second part, which we, we won't be able to talk about in too much depth, but we should at least um, treat a little bit. Now, this is a book that looks at the period from 1790, from about 1790 to the mid-20th century, that looks at efforts to now fight infanticide and, pra- and, and the processes that supported infanticide in the daily lives of many communities, right? And so... You take us through here the reasons why and some of the measures taken to justify um, this transformation to uh, uh, propaganda and other ways of speaking out against infanticide. Okay. 
Okay. So you've mentioned the context of this Tenmei famine of the 1780s. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and perhaps um, highlighting the ways, some of the ways that that transformed attitudes toward and discourses of infanticide in the years following? Mm, thank you. That in a way gets us back to uh, the STEM family. So in this uh, demographic culture that we've both described now, so few children were raised that uh, little by little, the population of the villages of eastern Japan dwindled. Um, but this is a cumulative process, uh, right? So um, it, usually you get the peak values uh, of, of the village headcounts around 1700, 1710, thereabouts. Um, and by 1750, you still aren't really in crisis mode. But by 1780, uh, the decline um, in, in, in the population is, is frequently on the order of, of, of 20 or, or locally 30, 40%. Then this great famine happens that, that is caused by, by, by cold weather and, well, sort of complex human interactions, of course, like all uh, famines. And especially in parts of eastern Japan, um, locally 20 sometimes even more, to up to 40% of the population is starved to death. And so you have these vistas of devastation. And even in those parts of eastern Japan where people uh, don't starve in, in, in large numbers, um, they hear these stories of uh, society in crisis. And given the kind of correlative thinking that, that we can assume prevailed this like, like other East Asian societies of the time, the fact that the weather is bad is not seen as an entirely external event. Um, it's, it's understood as uh, a challenge to, to the prevailing um, mores of, of, of human society. But perhaps even more importantly, uh, if we imagine that we are in a village um, in, in eastern Japan now, um, which might have had 400 inhabitants in 1700, and now it's down to 250, uh, people are surrounded by evidence that society is shrinking. Um, there are animals that come down from the mountains and, and raid the fields. And then some people think that these are uh, the spirits of infants that, that, that have been killed and that now return um, as, as furry creatures to eat the grain that their parents uh, begrudged them. Um, we have empty houses. Uh, when headmen look at their old population registers, they notice that there were a lot more people uh, at a generation previously. And in the new population registers that they write up, they might often have pages and pages of uh, just single lines that say this is an extinct household. Um, that, however, for various reasons, we still want to keep on the books. So in the 1780s, it becomes clear that the promise of immortality that the Stem family held for people isn't necessarily coming true because so many family lines are going extinct. And that means that there are no descendants to take care of these uh, deified ancestors anymore. And so they lose their status as, as, as deities and return to the cycle of suffering um, and rebirth. Uh, so that's at the level of individual families. At the larger political level, uh, the lords of Japan are worried that the shrinking um, populations uh, aren't able to pay taxes at a level that can sustain their their expenditure, and it's also just seen as a as a sign of bad governance. That sorry, as as a sign of bad governance that your local uh, populations are shrinking. Add to that that this is the same historical moment in which a small, initially small group of people begins to worry about uh, the Western threat, the threat from these people whose uh, ships are sighted uh, on the shores of Japan with increasing frequency um, beginning in the late uh, 18th century. And we have something like a perfect storm for 
uh, uh, the culture of infanticide in that um, it's now seen as something uh, that that undermines the stability of Japan, that undermines the individual goals of families, but that also um, makes uh, Japan quite quite vulnerable to to foreign incursion. That's right, and and in this um, in the successive chapters, I just want to kind of signal for listeners, um, you we're seeing people prevent or um, rather proposing various arguments to try to convince people either in, in terms of their behavior or their thinking or both to curb infanticide. And those include um, kind of uh, propaganda materials and I, you know, used in the broadest sense of that term, arguing um, that infanticide is immoral, that people killed infants were monsters or were beasts. We see efforts to humanize the infant and so to sort of reverse this uh, tendency to dehumanize infants that we saw earlier. We see attempts to um, provide subsidies to help curb infanticide by taking away the economic excuse that families are too poor to afford them. We see attempts to surveil pregnancies to try to, um, you know, use surveillance as a way to enforce keeping the infant alive, rather. And we also see, as you just um, mentioned, an argument that links child-rearing to national security, especially in a period where there's a perceived threat to foreign invasion. Now, as we kind of move to um, my last couple of questions for you, we actually move to something that you said. This is very nice because it's we're coming full circle. And we move to something that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that Toward this last part of this story, and this takes us into well into the 19th century and beyond, um, there's there's actually a tendency to not talk about problems um, with infanticide. And what one of the things that you're showing late in this book is that this is actually related to transformations in the way people worried about this are thinking about civilization. Um, and so you you are showing here a relationship between changing perceptions of the geographies of civilization with willingness or not to talk about um, this problem and to think about this problem. And so would you speak a little bit to that? Because I think that kind of nice brings us to um, maybe to something like a conclusion before we talk about our wrap-up question. So in a way, this, this, this gets back to... Uh, something you, you mentioned earlier, um, reading time as space. And this is not just something that modern um, social scientists uh, are sometimes guilty of, but uh, it was a way of understanding uh, the world that made sense to a lot of observers in 18th century Japan, um, whereby they imagined that the peripheries of Japan somehow preserved an older way of being and this was reinforced uh, by memories of ethnic differences that in, in the ancient period uh, had existed at, at the edges of, of, of the Japanese archipelago. So at least in learned circles, we see the beginnings of um, a discourse that associates infanticide with lingering lingering barbaric customs, past that, that refuses to melt away in, in the backward parts of the country. Now, this becomes uh, much more salient uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Meiji Restoration when a concern with civilization um, is really quite central to well, what we might call the national conversation of, of Japan in, in this period. Is Japan a civilized country? What does Japan need to do to become more civilized? And on um, 
infanticide and abortion front, we actually have this very interesting phenomenon that local people will write up petitions where they say, I live in this backward periphery um, where people still kill their children. Something needs to be done about this. But this moment doesn't doesn't last very long. And in a sense, I can only speculate about the reasons, but uh, my, my best guess is that uh, something like the following happens. Um, in the first couple of years after the Meiji Restoration, so the call for uh, civilizing um, local customs, you know, for, for giving up uh, public urination and, and uh, mixed bathing and uh, killing your newborn children, um, is an invitation to join a new society. And it's quite attractive to, to, to a lot of people. And for a brief moment, it becomes the dominant language in which infanticide is discussed. But after a couple of years have passed, uh, people don't really want to be told anymore that they aren't civilized. And if you're a prefectural governor and you've just arrived in your new prefecture, pointing out that people still commit infanticide there is an implicit criticism of your predecessor who has just finished his term of office there. But it raises the question, why didn't he stamp out this, this barbaric custom? And also increasingly people worry about uh, what it might do to Japan's place in the, in the larger world if, if people openly speak about infanticide still being rampant. So at all levels, there are these incentives to just uh, drop the topic. And one thing that makes this possible is that the countermeasures that you just summarized, um, the late Tokugawa period, uh, infanticide countermeasures, are actually successful to, to some extent uh, in, in terms of convincing people to raise more children again. And so population decline is no longer a problem. By 1850, um, most villages, most domains have more or less regained their peak values from the, the early 18th century. And by the 1870s, when a new Meiji state begins to to collect national statistics. They um, portray a society that is growing at a at a steady clip, and so the demographic reason for worrying about infanticide falls away. Um, and so we enter this this long period where um, people continue to do it, but uh, there is no major social move anymore, uh, no, no major government intervention anymore to put a stop to it. Well, Fabian, thank you so much. Um, there's so much more in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, and I'll just uh, mention that there's also, in addition to the chapters that we've kind of uh, taken a, a brief stroll through, there's an epilogue that looks at what's happening, um, in, including under the reign of the Taisho Emperor, where infanticides are diminishing rapidly, and um, you speculate as to why that might be, um, and look and take us through into a period where abortion was effectively legalized in 1949 and look at the consequences of that. There's also a thematic conclusion that brings out some of the themes that we've been talking about and, and looks forward from them. It's And in addition, I'll mention, because these looked like um, you very painstakingly worked on them, and they're an amazing set of resources. There are several appendices um, that are there as resources for anybody who's particularly interested in the kinds of sources and information and documents 
documents and data, um, et cetera, et cetera, that you brought to bear in this book and would like to use some of these resources to continue on and do their own research. So it's an extraordinarily rich study. It's a brilliant study on many, many levels, and we really only barely scratched the surface. So I hope listeners will go out and get their own copy and read it and read it carefully because there's a lot in here, even if, again, you're not a historian of Japan or don't think of yourself as someone who's interested in Japan, there's a great deal in here to learn. So given all that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd especially like to mention um, for listeners today before we wrap up? So perhaps just very briefly, as I reflect on on this journey I describe uh, in in the book, the, the journey that the people of Eastern Japan undertook, I'm struck by the poignancy uh, of, of the following fact. Most of the goals that motivated the culture of infanticide could have been achieved through contraception and through the kind of contraceptive devices that were actually quite well known in certain sections of Japanese society in the centuries that, that we're talking about here. So the fact that people preferred to um, kill newborn children over allowing techniques that were associated with the world of prostitution to enter marital relations, I think is, is, is really quite suggestive in, in terms of understanding uh, the, the mindset at the time. And I think this might be one of the areas where um, I hope the book is, is, is a beginning rather than you know, trying to, to, to make a definitive uh, statement. Um, because that tension, I think, bears, bears a great deal of additional thought. In the same vein, uh, sort of to, to, to signal to um, those of our listeners who might be thinking about their own dissertation projects, I would absolutely love it if somebody uh, read the epilogue and, and, and looked at the many um, open questions that I, uh, that, that I highlight there. Because for all that I tried to, 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 to analyze and, and settle some of the questions of what happens um, in, in the early 20th century, which in its own way is a, is a time of, of uh, great demographic transformations, part of the fertility surge actually takes place in, in the uh, 1910s. Um, I'm very aware that uh, there's so much more to, to be done. And it's not um, a period that historical demographers have paid much attention to at all. So I, I would be very pleased if some people who read this book uh, will take it as a starting point for, for their own research, for their own inquiries. Well, speaking of um, things that are the starting point for continued inquiries, now that the book is out, and congratulations, it's a fabulous book, as I think I've probably said repeatedly, but I really believe. Um, what's Thank next you. for you? What's, what's currently inspiring you? What's in the future? Uh, so there, there are two uh, projects that, that I'm working on um, at the moment. One is um, about the social and cultural transformations of Japan in, in the 17th century, um, the time when the Great Peace enters its uh, third decade and um, you know, people get used to the, the idea that this is a stable order, but also a time when we, we move from a rapidly expanding society uh, to a society that transitions to... Um, for example, demographic stability or, or in, in parts of the country, demographic uh, contraction, and that figures out how to manage its forests sustainably, etc., uh, etc. Et and, and part of the reason that this is a project that I'm, I'm interested in is that uh, I have this strange obsession with old population registers. When 
the, the book that we just spent an hour talking about uh, floats on this uh, data set of 800,000 observations from old uh, population registers. Um, and it's just a wonderful excuse to now visit archives in all parts of Japan and try to gather every 17th century population register that I can find. And then hopefully this might, this might add up over the long term into a new perspective on these uh, larger transformations, these larger cultural transformations uh, of the late 17th century. But partly because I'm well aware of my weakness for population registers, this is something that I'm actually not envisioning as, as, my, as my second book project. And the thing that I'm mostly working on at the moment, actually, is a project about the great famines uh, of early modern Japan and what they can tell us about the fabric of, of the uh, Tokugawa order. And just very briefly, my starting point there, again, this is demographic in that I've collected time series of deaths from temple necrologies. Um, and one thing that comes out of those is that there's a huge amount, a surprisingly large amount of micro-regional variation in death rates uh, during during these famines. Um, so you might travel a couple of miles and the, the death rate during the famine might quadruple. Um, and I think that raises all sorts of interesting questions about uh, the bonds of obligation that, that constituted society at the time, because these are times when people have to triage, uh, when there's not enough uh, food to go around, and they're forced to decide what their most important uh, relationships are. And this works uh, both at the level of individual people in, in the villages, but also at the level uh, of domains and how they negotiate these challenges. But I also just think that the fight against famine in, in Tokugawa, Japan, is actually a story that's that's full of, of drama. You know, after all, this is about saving lives and, and is well worth telling. Great. Well, best of luck with those projects. Thank you again so much for making the time to talk with me today. And congratulations again on the book. I'm sure this is going to get a lot of uh, attention. I hope it gets a wide, wide readership. And it really was a pleasure to read it and to talk with you about it. Carla, thank you so much for your eloquence and, and clarity of mind in, in, in summarizing the findings. And as I've told you before, I'm, I'm a great fan of what you're doing here, uh, opening uh, this, this new medium for, for talking about books and, and, and celebrating these artifacts. So I, I'm, I'm grateful to you on multiple levels. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. 